This afternoon, we're going to be spending some time considering this uh, a concept that it should not be foreign to us. It should be something that that we desire to uh, to grow in. It should be something that we desire to to not only be growing in, but to be making ourselves in, molding ourselves in. I want to talk to you about the idea of growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In the uh, second epistle of Peter, we have a letter that was written with an awareness um, at, at its heart. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, In the grace of the Lord... Excuse me, my, I'm opened up to 1 Timothy. That is not what I wanted. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 14. It says, Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter understood that it, his time on this earth was, was short. He didn't have much time left. And so he, he had some warnings that he wanted to, to put out, and he had some hopes that he wanted to give. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction Upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words, and their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So he had these warnings for them, <coughs> and he also had a hope that they would be mindful of the commandments that had been given to them in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The final command that this apostle leaves is his readers is a charge to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can see this in chapter, chapter 3 and verse 18 as he is closing out the letter, saying, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What I want to do is I want to spend some time, uh, and really this is going to be more than something we can cover in, in one lesson. One, one lesson is not enough to really understand this. But we are going to use this to start our, a, a, a thought process that I hope will continue for a while. That ourselves, What does that mean? What does that mean to grow in the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, and how can we be sure that we are growing in this knowledge? What I want to do this afternoon is to define what Peter had in mind when he gave his final charge, and to encourage uh, both growth and development in that in the knowledge of Jesus. And to do that, we are going to start at the beginning of this uh, <coughs> of this letter. We are going to going to look at what Peter had in mind whenever he spoke these words in Second Peter chapter one, verses five through eight. This is part of what it means to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Now for this very reason also applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, then in your self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render neither useless nor unfruitful, and the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these, these, uh, these eight graces that are, that are discussed here in verses 5 through 7, we will briefly define them, briefly take a look at them. When the first one 
we see is, is the idea of, of faith. Um, and we see it in verse 5 that we are to, to uh, apply all diligence in our faith, supply moral excellence. So we see it starting off with faith. And faith is a, is a conviction. I know we all know the definitions of these words. But it really it's a, con, a, a conviction or a strong assurance. And that word assurance is really, it, it describes faith so well. I love to think about faith and the ideas of assurance. Uh, and even, as I've said before, one of my favorite songs for us to sing is Blessed Assurance. Because that word assurance implies something that we don't know 100% for certain on. I don't have to assure Ryder and Easton and Madden that, they're, that, that they have a closet in their room. They can look out of their bed and see that closet. But I do constantly have to assure them that maybe there's not a monster in that closet. They, 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 have to, they, they can't know for 100%. They are taking a level of, of faith in believing that. Faith is that. It is that strong assurance. It is, it is a very, very strong belief that we have. We were to add to that virtue or, or moral excellence. Uh, we were to add to that goodness. And, and also it says here in, in the idea of knowledge. This knowledge that is talked about is, is knowledge that is considered maybe like the insights into what God's Word says and having a correct understanding of these things. We're going to follow knowledge up with self-control or self-discipline. And then we're going to, we're going to tag onto that perseverance. The idea of bearing up under trials. We talked about this Saturday morning, such an excellent way to describe bearing. We were talking about bearing and enduring and how, how they are uh, similar but not the same. And how a, a building, if it wants to endure, if it wants to stand the test of time, it has to have load-bearing walls. Walls that will bear up the pressure uh, to give it the ability to endure. So we need to have that perseverance. We need to be able to bear up under trials. We need to have godliness, godly character, which comes out of a devotion to God after making ourselves and molding ourselves after God and trying to make His characteristics our character. We also need to have brotherly kindness, which is love, obviously, towards one another and towards brethren. And then in a, in a overall, we need to have love, that is, active goodwill towards others. But what I wanted to do is just look at those briefly, because I think we all really know um, the, these graces, we've talked about these graces before, but I want to note carefully in verse chapter, or chapter 1 and verse 8 what it says in these. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, and are increasing, some translations maybe see, are abounding, we must increase, we must abound in these eight graces. Only then can it be said that we are growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it is more than simply increasing our intellectual knowledge of Jesus. When we look at this, it's more than <clears throat> just, just growing and, and knowing what the Bible says. Very, very important thing. This knowledge has its place, but it's just one of the graces that are necessary. Sometimes we might get just a little bit too caught up on that and place that above or, or just throw out the rest of them and say, i just got to make sure that I know everything the Bible says. Well, yeah, I would, I would strive to do that. I would strive to know everything the Bible says. But we must remember that it is only one of these eight graces that Peter talks about. Peter is talking about taking ourselves and growing into a fuller, filled person. A person who is filled with the knowledge of Jesus, which comes by developing Christ-like attributes that are listed in this passage. The more we grow in these graces, the more we really can say that we know Jesus because He is the perfect 
per- personification, if you will. He's the perfect uh, presence of, of or presentation of, of these graces. And that involves that involves so much more than just an intellectual knowledge. And I want to suggest that that's made evident when we dig into the Greek a little bit here. We're going to talk about a few Greek words. No, I am not a Greek scholar. <laughs> I've found these definitions <coughs> and looked these up from, from Greek dictionaries because I have no idea even how to pronounce most of them. I'm relying on, on the Greek scholars for that. But the, one of the first words I want to talk about is um, the word epignosis. Epignosis, which is seen in verses uh, 2 through 3 and in verse 8 also, is, the, is, is a word that means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly, to know accurately, to know well. Whenever we were talking <coughs> about the knowledge that we are to have, this knowledge only comes as we demonstrate and, and as we are very well acquainted with and as we have made it an intricate part of our lives, these Christ-like graces that are talking about. Not just knowing what Christ did, but doing what Christ did and making that our character. In that, we can start to, epignosis, we can start to become more acquainted with and thoroughly know Christ when we are making ourselves like Him. Another word that I want to focus on is a conjunction word, a word that ties these together, it's the word add, or some translations say supply. First, Second uh, <coughs> Peter 1.5 says right there, after faith, supply moral excellence. Um, and you can really just kind of, it, it is implied in all these, you can stick this right after each one. Moral excellence, supply knowledge, knowledge supplies self-control, so on and so forth. The word add comes from the Greek word epicherigo. Yes, that's how you pronounce it, because that's how I said it. Epicherigo. This is originally uh, meant to describe the, the finding and supporting of a chorus. It is meant to describe the lead of a choir, and it literally means to keep in tune. You're keeping something in tune. So now, in, in, these, in the way that it's used in, um, in, in the Scripture here, it means to supply or to provide. But when we truly understand it, even in its original context and in the way that it would have been used in that day, it, it teaches us so much about the harmony that each one of these graces is to have with one another. And when we look at it, and especially with, our, uh, with this example of knowledge and then self-control, our knowledge is supposed to be within harmony, is supposed to keep in tune with self-control. You know, I have a, a little cousin, and he's not a little cousin anymore. He's grown up a lot, but he, uh, he was just he's way smart. I mean, just really, really smart kid. And uh, he was, I don't know, five or six years old. He, he came, they, they live out of state, but they came and visited for Christmas. And he was going on and on and on about this, this front-end loader that he got for Christmas, a little toy front-end loader. And he kept, I'm, I'm not even going to forget the word he used. Okay, and when he ever, he got there and he was just talking about it and just, you know, look at this, look at the, the pickup dirt. And it was like, yeah, that's okay. He goes, look, it even articulates in the middle. And I just remember going, like, you made me feel so stupid when you said that word. Because I had to go turn around and be like, what does that word mean? Articulate. Okay, it, it bends in the middle. That's okay, I got it. You know, he didn't mean anything by it. There have been plenty of times when we need to practice self-control in our knowledge. That needs to be a quality <coughs> that, that controls, 
that, that, that holds back, that tempers the knowledge that we have because sometimes not everybody is on the same page as we are. We see that, that described and that used in countless examples in the, in the New Testament. We see Philip doing that with the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm sure Philip could have, could have really just dove into this really huge theological argument with this Ethiopian eunuch, but what does he do? He starts where he's at. He starts where he is in, in the book of Isaiah, and, and he has self-control on the knowledge that he had. That's very important for us to understand in all of these as we add each one of these moral excellences to make up a, a combined figure. You know, when we're putting all these together to make up one, they all add to and keep in check or tune one another to make us, to make us more like Christ. And we can't be selective with them. We can't say this one's more important than that one. I'm going to focus all my attention on this one and throw out the rest. We also can't say, well, that one I really struggle with. So I'll make sure all the rest of these look really good, but that one, they're just God's going to have to do without that one. That's not going to be for me. No, each one of these is important, and each one of these goes together. And then we are also told to do all this, to do all this with all diligence. <clears throat> Both in verse 5 and in verse 10. If we look down in verse 10, it says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The repeated use of the word diligence here, it means that we are to be earnest. We are to be zealous. We are to be without haste. This is to be the, the, in the forefront of our walk. Whenever we are walking with Christ, this isn't something that we just say, one of these days I'll make some time to make myself more like Christ. This is something that we say that right now, while I have the opportunity, while there is breath coming out of my lungs, I'm going to model myself after Christ. So to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, it requires effort. It's not something that we just accidentally do, and it's not something that we, that we naturally develop. These things are, uh, these graces, they are countercultural. They are counter-human nature. They are things that we just don't really usually just wake up in the morning and Look, there's a, there's a model of Christ. It's something that we must work at. In fact, I'm reminded of a story that, I, that I'd once read about a woman who had been in school for, for 25 years. She was a teacher for 25 years. And there was this job opening up, and, and she just knew. She said, I've been here for 25 years, and I want that promotion. If I put my name in, I'm going to get it. It's, it, it. The promotion is mine. So she applied for the position. But someone who, who, who had only been teaching for one year came in and applied as well. And, and this, this younger teacher, this person who was teaching for such a shorter amount of time, they were hired instead. She was very upset, and she went to the principal, and she demanded, and she asked, why? Why did this happen? Look at all the experience I have versus the experience this has, person has. And the principal responded, I'm sorry, but you, you don't have... 25 years of experience as you claim you have. And she just blown away. What do you mean? I've been here for 25 years. The principal responded and said, yes, but you really only have one year of experience 25 times. See, during that whole time the teacher had been there in the 25 years, the teacher had not improved. She's the same teacher that she was 25 years ago. She hadn't grown in any sort of way. And, and she hadn't made any improvements in her teaching. And that does not need to describe us as Christians. 
We may have been Christians for a number of years, but unless we add to our faith these Christ-like qualities, unless we do that with all diligence, we're simply repeating the first steps over and over and over again. So we need to ask ourselves then, are we going to do this? Are we going to grow? Are we going to add these? And then maybe in asking that question, I hope that as we sit down and, and discuss with ourselves and in our hearts, is this something that I'm going to put the effort into to do? We ask ourselves this question, is this even worth it? In the context of the passage, and reading, Peter provides five reasons Five reasons why we should give all diligence to grow in this knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the reasons to grow in the knowledge, uh, number one, is grace and peace are going to be multiplied. Grace and peace are common forms of greetings in the New Testament. We see this oftentimes when, when a, <coughs> a letter is written and it, and it is included in it, grace be with you or peace be with you. Um, that is a greeting which requests God's unmerited favor upon the person addressed. And peace is a greeting which requests the natural result of God's favor. Those two things, again, go hand in hand. Note that these two blessings are multiplied in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Read with me 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I think that might help a little bit. Um, so what, one thing we see here is that all men, all men can experience God's favor and, and as a result, and its result to some degree. To, to some extent, we can see that all can experience the, the, <coughs> the favor of God. Look in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Matthew 5, verse 45 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We can see that. We can understand that. That to some extent, everybody gets to experience God's favor. But only those in Christ can enjoy the fullness of God's favor and peace. Another passage we might look at to, to wrap our minds around that is Philippians chapter 4. As we already read this morning, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses uh, 6 through 7, which again says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And another passage is Ephesians chapter 1, and in verse 3, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you desire God's grace, if you desire God's peace, and you desire it to be multiplied, to be abundant in your life, it's through the knowledge. And again, that word is epignosis. It is through the, the, the close and, and, and intimate understanding of Jesus Christ. What that means is, as you become more like Him, these things are multiplied in your life. And then as we just read, it also includes all things pertaining to life and godliness. We note that. That God provides everything we need uh, to, to, in, in, in pertaining to this. And it is, um, in, in the context here, the word life, the word life refers to our, our, our spiritual life. Our spiritual well-being. 
when we, when we read that, when we think of, you know, pertaining, all things pertaining to life, you know, it, it's easy sometimes to take these passages and pull them out of their context and really make them say something that they don't really say. Uh, I'm always reminded of the, the experience that we had in, at a gospel meeting one time. The, the preacher read Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he said, he said if I go up on top of this building and jump off, well, I'll be okay. And the little girl in the front pew said, absolutely. <laughs> He's, he stopped and came down and said, don't jump off the building. You will not be okay. We've we got to make sure we, we really spend some time understanding and don't really pull these things out of their context. In the context of 2 Peter 1 verse 3, life refers to our spiritual life, our spiritual well-being. And godliness refers to that, that pious conduct which comes out of a devotion to God. He has given us everything we need pertaining to our spiritual well-being and to devotion to Him. And only as we grow in this knowledge do we enjoy the true and the full availability of God's divine power, which includes exceedingly great and precious promises. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, the beginning of verse 4 says, it says, For he has granted us these precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We are, we are free from these things. We are free from that corruption. We are enabled to partake of that divine nature. And if we desire to have all that, God offers it related to life and to godliness. But we must develop. We must develop a Christ-like character to receive it. Another thing that, that, <coughs> that is promised of this is that Spiritual myopia, that's a word that we don't use very often, but I, I recently have uh, been called this, so it was on my mind. Spiritual myopia and amnesia, these things can be avoided. So myopia or, or myopic is, is the idea of microscopic. When you zoom in and you're so narrow-minded and short-sighted and you're focused on one thing, you know, our religion certainly can become that. It can become short-sighted if we're not growing in the nature of Jesus. If we're not growing, excuse me, in the knowledge of Jesus, then we are not focusing on the big picture. Look in chapter, uh, <coughs> chapter 1, verse 9. The end of this, uh, these, these graces, he says, For he who lacks the qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Our religion can certainly be short-sighted. That is, that is the ultimate object, objective of being a Christian, is becoming more like Christ. Becoming to, to be modeled and to be formed in His image. And as we have seen, this is what really means to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And so failure to do grow, failure to, to, to mold ourselves after Him, would indicate that we have forgotten why. We've forgotten why we were redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've forgotten what our purpose is. We have forgotten Christ himself, maybe. So we have, our, have we forgotten that our sins have been forgiven and that we have been, we have been purchased so that we could be made, so that we could be in his image? And unless we want that, that guilt of forgetfulness, the guilt of myopia, of short-sightedness, 
We need to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Another, another promise that is given is that we will never stumble. Peter says, if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you are diligent to make your calling and your election sure, if you add to your faith virtue and etc. and etc., if you abound in these <coughs> eight graces, you will never stumble. This does not mean you will never sin. 1 John chapter 1, we, we referenced this this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And in verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for, for stumbling in him. This does not mean that we will never sin when we read these things. The word stumble in the Greek, that word truly means fall into misery. Fall into wretchedness. It's the, the idea of the loss of salvation. We will never stumble so as to fall short of our ultimate salvation if we will model ourselves and if we will form in ourselves, not our own character, but Christ's character. This assurance, this assurance is true only, only if we are giving all diligence to grow in the knowledge of Christ and thereby making our calling an election sure. And then lastly, I want to point out that we have a fifth promise, and that is an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Back over in 2 Peter 1, and in verse 11, it says, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that by the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you'll be able to call these things into mind. I apologize, I read the wrong passage too. Verse, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, where I'm meant to read, For in this way the entrance into eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. What does that mean, that it is abundantly supplied to us? 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 18, we read a little more <coughs> about a heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and, I will bring, and He will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we have an idea of this heavenly kingdom, and we are going to have an abundant entrance into this heavenly kingdom. What, what is meant by that? What is meant by the idea of an abundant entrance? You know, a lot of times I, I feel like Sometimes we completely miss the point of, of God giving us a hope of, of eternal life in heaven. I've, I've, I've heard people say, and, I, and, I've, and I've met people who, who have this sort of attitude that just kind of like, I really hope I've, I've done enough. I feel like if I'm going to, uh, somehow on that judgment day, it's going to flip a coin, or, or maybe as, as, as if I am allowed in. I'm going to just kind of sneak in, or I'm going to shirk in. But that's not what's described when we think of an abundant entrance into a heavenly kingdom. It's been described before that you may be able to enter, I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven, not as having escaped from a shipwreck or from a fire, 
but as it were in triumph. You know, I think a lot of times it's easy for us to really look at, and healthy for us, to really look at heaven and, and our entrance into it, our being allowed to enter into it, and to look at it with great humility and, and say, I, I am not worthy to do that. And again, that's, that's, that's a healthy way to look at that because we, we really we haven't done anything that makes us worthy to do that. But we are going to enter into heaven with triumph and with an abundant entrance, not because of what we've done, but because of what God sent His Son and did that we had no ability to do upon our own. His precious blood that was, that was shed gives us the ability to come into heaven and not go into heaven as if we, we just barely made it. To go into heaven and, and to be victorious and to be joyful and, and to rejoice but this all comes, again, through the right kind of living. By possessing these eight graces, then we'll be able to live victoriously in this life and joyously anticipate what lies ahead. There are not... These reasons... These reasons we have, are they not sufficient enough? Are they not enough to motivate us and to, to prod us to grow, to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Because through this knowledge that we need to be growing in, not only do we receive a multiplied amount of grace and of peace, not only do we receive all things pertaining to life and to godliness, we, we have the ability to avoid a short-sighted uh, religion we have the ability not to stumble, not to lose our salvation, but to be sure of our calling and our election. And we have the ability to victoriously enter into an everlasting kingdom that will be ours. We will share in that kingdom with God. Isn't these reasons enough to cause us to want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? To do so requires that we grow in these eight graces. To do so requires that we grow in conjunction with each of these eight graces. And we do so diligently, zealously. Not, not for a period of time, and then we slack off. Not for most of our lives, and at the end of our life we say, no, we, we, we've done that enough. Not when we're young and say, I'll do that later, whenever there's more time, and whenever there's less things that I want to do. We diligently form these things in our lives now. And I trust that you will agree. A careful study of these eight graces will lead to developing a Christ-like character, and it is worth the effort. This afternoon, <clears throat> if you have not, <coughs> if you have not been baptized for the remission of your sins, if you have not become a child of God, then then you certainly are not. Don't have a Christ like character, because Christ was submissive. Christ was obedient, even up to the point of death to God. Uh, but most of us, all of us, I believe, have, have made that decision. But there's certainly a possibility that through our lives that we have been living each and every day, in and out, that, that our lives require us to really step back and to do some, some real introspection. 
to look within and say, am I Christ-like? Does my character reflect that of Christ? Do I need to grow in these eight graces? And if we remember what it said, We remember what it said in verse in, in verse eight, or in verse nine. For he who lacks the quality, no, excuse me, verse eight. For these qualities yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless. We need to not only step back and say, "Can I grow?" But how much more should I continue to try, continue to grow? I should never be willing to stop and look at this and say, "I think I've done enough." So, if there is anything this morning or this afternoon that we can help you with, any way at all. In which you might need the prayers of the saints, uh, need us to, to, to pray with you and, and, and to approach our God together, I encourage you, please let it be known now as we stand and as we sing.